Okay, so I believe I've said this before, but there's a saying. See if you know the saying. It's not how you start, it's how, it's how you finish. I, I don't know if you guys like that saying. I'm not particularly fond of it. Imagine telling that to your spouse in the early months or years of your marriage. Right? Honey, you should get a job. Honey, you should do something around the house. Honey, you should tell me you love me. That's eh, not how you start, it's how you finish. Honey, there ain't going to be no finish if we don't start better. Imagine telling that to your new employer if you're doing a bad job out the gate. Eh, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Imagine telling that to the Lord when, he, when you give your life to Christ and he sets you free from your sin, but you continue in a life of sin and you say to the Lord, well, that's not how you start, it's, it's how you finish. Hmm. I believe that the start, the finish, and every day in between are important. Wouldn't you agree? We know from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians that, that they had gotten off to a good start. This was a, it was a young church. This church was new in their faith. But they were living their Christianity how? With what? Remember that word? With excellence. They were living their Christianity in 1 Thessalonians. This church at Thessalonica, they were living their Christianity with excellence. But in that first letter, Paul twice said to them to do what? To excel still more. He says that in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians verse 1, and he says it again in verse 10. Hey, you're doing excellent, excel still more. Then he says it again, you're doing excellent, but excel still more. Oftentimes in Christianity, the saying sometimes is the opposite. Oftentimes we live our lives as if the saying was, it's not how you finish, it's how you start. Let me explain. Somehow, we lose our first love for the Lord. Oh, but it's not how you finish, it's how you start. We, we lose that excitement that first came upon us when we realized our sinfulness and how desperately we needed Jesus Christ. We lose our diligence to pray. We lose our diligence to spend time in the Word of God. We lose our diligence to serve the Lord and His church and, and to love others sacrificially. We, we lose that. Because in the church, oftentimes, it's not how you finish, it's how you start. Hmm. That's not good. With this second letter to the church at Thessalonica, it's refreshing. It's refreshing to know that our Lord is just as concerned about our daily character as he is about our day of conversion. It's not just get him in and we'll not worry about anything after that. He's worried about our daily character as much as he is about our day of conversion. Praise God. And so this may come as a surprise and even cause some discouragement. But the devil focuses his attention on those churches and on those Christians that are operating with excellence. Did you know that? If a church and a believer is not operating with excellence, and they're not being a good church and they're not being a good believer, what's he got to worry about wasting his time on you and I for? He goes after those that are doing it with excellence. So on some level, (laughs) be encouraged if that's the case. It's a compliment. If you're under attack, say, Lord, this kind of stinks. But I must be doing something right. That's the scenario in this second letter to this church in Thessalonica. This church that started so well and is doing things with excellence, they're under attack, they're under persecution. They were being deceived 
that the day of the Lord was actually happening at the time, in their time. Go to chapter 2 of this letter, and let's read verses 1 through 5 to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Paul and Silas and Timothy say this, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So when Jesus comes to get us, the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed by three things, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. Satan's known as the deceiver. So he's, going, he's trying to deceive this church that's doing well. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then he says in verse 5, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So the Lord can speak truth into us, but the enemy's going to keep coming with lies. And Paul's going, I spoke truth to you. Remember we talked about this. Boy, church, we're sheep. <laughs> we're sheep. We need to be told again and again and again and again. Many of them... In this letter, which we'll get into later, they were, they were quitting their jobs. That's what's happening in this letter. They're quitting their jobs, and it put an extra burden on those that were still working in the church in order to care for those that couldn't care for themselves because the Lord's coming, right? If you knew the Lord was coming tomorrow, let's say the Lord was coming a month from now. How many of you would quit your jobs if you knew the Lord was coming 30 days from now? A lot of us. I probably shouldn't raise my hand, right? If you knew, you'd be like, I'm out, man. I am out. I ain't paying my bills. I ain't doing nothing. I ain't hosing down my driveway. The Lord's coming. Satan was working overtime in order to deceive this church. Here's some food for thought. In 2 Thessalonians, we're dealing with poor behavior, if you will, from the church. Because they were over-anticipating the day of the Lord. They were over-anticipating the day of the Lord. Perhaps 2,000 years later, the opposite's true in the church. We don't anticipate the coming of the Lord. We don't live with this understanding or with this expectancy. And then we have poor behavior for the opposite reason. We can have poor behavior because we think it's coming tomorrow, and we can have poor behavior because we, we just kind of forget that it's coming at all. And I think if we lived with the expectancy that the Lord was coming, that we might live a little differently. I remember when I got saved in high school, and I started going to Greg Laurie's church out in Riverside. And I met a brother, and we became friends, and I I called him one day, and, hey, dude, what are you doing? He goes, I'm hanging out on the roof. And I says, what are you doing that for? He goes, I'm waiting for the Lord, man. And I just, he he was kidding, but I loved that. He lived with that expectancy. He lived his life, he was responsible, but he lived every day, man. The Lord's coming today, man. The Lord's coming today. And if we lived with that expectancy, I think we live differently today. Okay? So in this letter, before we get into verse 1, three things. Paul commends them. Remember he said twice in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, excel still more. So he's writing a letter to say, did you do that or did you not? 
So in 2 Thessalonians, one of the three things he does is he commends them for doing just that. He's saying, you have excelled still more. The second thing he's doing in this letter is he's correcting them in their error about the day of the Lord. It's like, yeah, it's not now. It's coming later. We talked about this, but he's going to clear that up. And then the third thing he does is he warns them, if they don't get corrected in their doctrinal error, that there are some consequences for that. There's always consequences if we don't correct the things that we're in error about. Church, let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful to see how Paul and Silvanus and Timothy follow up with this amazing church in Thessalonica. We thank you for the word that you had for them and how that word applies to us thousands of years later. God, you're so good to us. We pray that you have your way with us. May we trust you with our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's read verses 1 through 5, okay, church? If you're not there already, go to chapter 1, verse 1. Verses 1 through 5. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. We, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, ought always give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love that you have, each one of you toward one another, grows ever greater. What a great start to a letter. And therefore, we ourselves, we speak proudly of you among the churches of God in our travels for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication, in in other words, it's evidence of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Wow, a lot of stuff in there. So, before addressing these verses individually, let's look to see if this church did indeed excel still more as Paul claims since his first letter. Let's look at verse 3. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Why? (laughs) Because your faith has exploded, right, in a good way, and your love has exploded. It's grown even greater. The key words there in verse 3, look at those words in the middle. As is only fitting. They declare that they... They ought always, they are to always give thanks to God as is fitting to their behavior. As is fitting to their behavior. As the Lord would, so Paul does. Proclaiming words that accurately accurately reflect what is fitting for our lives. That's what Paul does. He speaks words that are fitting to what's going on for them. The Lord does the same with us. He speaks words to us that are fitting for our situation. Check out these three powerful affirmations in verses 3, verses 4, and verses 5. Verse 3, it says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. That's an affirmation that they're doing well. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. And look what verse 5 says. You will be considered worthy 
of the kingdom of God. God's referenced in all three of those verses. Give thanks to God, speak proudly to you among the churches of God, and you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. We are answerable and accountable to God. These are the things that are fitting to be spoken of about this church. Constant thanks, they're spoken of proudly, and they're considered worthy. Keep that on the screen for just a few minutes. These three declarations are fitting for this church. So here becomes the obvious question, perhaps. What is fitting to be declared before God about this church, about the church across the street, about the church down the street? What's fitting to be declared about us? What matches with with our character, with, with our godliness? What would Paul write about this church? What is fitting to be declared before God about your life in Christ and about my life in Christ? What would Paul write about you? What three things would he use to describe your walk with Jesus Christ? What's fitting to who you are? Because this is what's fitting to this church. I would encourage each one of us, as I did yesterday, to take time to ask the Holy Spirit what is fitting to be written of you. Take some time and listen to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what would Paul write about me? What would somebody who knows my spiritual journey, what would be fitting for them to write about me? It's a good exercise. We should do that. And where it's good, praise the Lord for that. And where we are challenged, repent, confess, ask the Lord to strengthen you to grow in that area. Church, let's read verse 1. And we're going to go through these now one at a time. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, okay, what's there to talk about here? Not much, really, except for this. This letter, it doesn't say to the churches or just to the church in general. It's to a specific church. It's written to the church of the Thessalonians. To me, the Lord recognizes He recognizes his people. He recognizes his churches. They have names. We have names. The Lord knows who they are. He knows them as a people group. He recognizes this church, and he has a word. He has a word for this church. This word is not the word that he has for the church in Ephesus. It's not the word that he has for the Colossians or the the Ephesians. I'm sorry, or the Philippians, or the Thessalonians. It's for the Thessalonians. That's who the word's for. It's not for another church. It's for this church. Now, it doesn't mean we're contradictory. This letter is not just for them. It's for us as well. But there are things that the Lord has for a particular church and for a particular person, right? This word is for them, to, to be them and to do them well. Our Lord beautifully orchestrates his work in each church, in each individual. And so we need to be careful. So sometimes we say, that church needs to be like our church, or our church needs to be like that church. And God's like, no, I've, I've orchestrated all of this just perfectly. I know what I want this church to be like, and I know what I want this church to be like. And so we put our values, if you will, our desires and our hopes on other people or on other churches. What God's doing in our life, we think God should be doing that in another person's life. And we're all on different journeys, And it's all part of how the Lord works his wonder amongst his church and amongst his people. It's just a beautiful display. And so we don't want to lose sight of that. Yes, this is for us as well. But it's for this particular church. And I just think that that's powerful. And it's just a great reminder. And so we can celebrate how God's coming along an individual differently than how God's coming alongside us. Not in a contradictory way, but in a complementary way. 
Amen? Amen. Let's look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Be honest. Okay, so Paul wrote how many letters in the New Testament? There's 27 New Testament letters. How many did Paul write? 13. I believe Paul opens every one of his letters the same way. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we read that verse, when I just read that verse, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, do you find yourself wanting to move on to the next verse because you've heard that before? It's like, okay, it's just, it's just introductory, you know, feel-good stuff. Oh, my goodness, it's not. It's there for a reason. It's vastly important, church. Listen, God's grace, because God and Jesus are mentioned, and his grace and peace are mentioned in verse 2. God's grace is found in the person of Jesus, who is the source of peace. God's grace extended to us is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the source of our peace. If that's the only verse we had, that's a pretty cool Bible. It's huge. God's grace and our sinfulness, he extends his grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who becomes our peace. Peace that we have now with God the Father, and peace that we can have with one another. Go to Ephesians. Go to your left. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 12, 12 to 18. Paul says to this church, he says, hey man, remember that you were at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from God's family, from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Ouch. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Through Jesus Christ, there can be, there can exist Zero barriers between us if we choose to submit to the person of Jesus Christ. He can remove every barrier. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus, who is an extension of God's grace, is our peace between each other and between our Heavenly Father. Praise be to our God. I love one commentary says this about grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. We're rich. We can gloss over that verse. Grace and peace in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, yeah, what do you got to say? I said enough already. Grace and peace. We are rich in, in the Lord at Christ's expense. Okay, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Go back to chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. That was a couple weeks ago when we talked about we all can have a motto. And this could be our motto. Verses 16, 17, and 18 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. That's God's will for you in Christ. We're to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful when? All the time. Joyful, prayerful, and thankful all the time. Well, we can more readily execute those three verses when we keep grace and peace in mind. That's how important verse 2 is. When we keep God's grace and the peace of Jesus Christ in mind, we can actually be joyful and prayerful and thankful all the time if we keep grace and peace in mind. Can I get an amen? Yeah. So, perhaps we have seasons in life wondering what the Lord has done lately, right? Like, Lord, what are you doing in this? What are you doing in that? What's this season of life about? I've been wrestling with my voice for 10 months, and I'm wondering, God, what's going on? And sometimes I don't know, and I won't know. It might be weeks, it might be months, it might be years. It might be decades. But in the midst of all that, here's what's cool. Grace and peace are ours daily. Daily. Whatever season of life you're going through, from some of these other things that are going on in life, we can just hit pause and just say, I can be joyful, prayerful, and thankful every day because grace and peace are mine every day. That's the importance of verse 2. Grace and peace in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Close the book. Let's have a great day. (laughs) Okay, verse 3. Let's read verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. He's, obviously, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy are writing to the church at Thessalonica. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Because, and here's why, your faith is greatly enlarged and your love has grown even greater. Okay? So, I think this is fascinating in verse 3. I'm going to ask you guys to do a little homework. Who, look at verse 3, who is doing something good in verse 3? Who's doing something good? And then what is the good that they're doing? If you think you know, just raise your hand. Take a risk for Jesus. It won't hurt. Who's doing something good? Alvin, who's doing something good in verse 3? The brethren. The brethren. What are they doing? They're kicking butt in love and they're kicking butt in faith. That's what it says, right? Those are the two things. It says the brethren, right? So we're, we're giving thanks to God because you're doing well and your faith is growing and your love is growing. That's what's happening, right? Well, there's somebody else that's doing something good in verse 3. There's the brethren and then there's the we. The first part of verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. They're doing something fantastic too. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're the we. They're saying, we recognize you, church. We recognize that you're doing fantastic in your love and in your faith. So we have an obligation to thank God for you. That's what that means. In the NRSV, it it reads this way. We must always give thanks. The New King James says we are bound to give thanks. They're doing something good as well. The church is growing in their love and in their faith, but these leaders are are praising God and they're thanking God because they're obligated to do so. They have a responsibility before God. That's what that verse reads. And so when our brothers and sisters are doing well, we're obligated to say, good job, I'm thanking the Lord for you. 
That's our responsibility as well. So there's actually two people groups doing something fantastic in verse 3. It's not just the church. It's these leaders and these outsiders of the church saying, I'm thanking God for you because you're doing so well. That allows us to do that verses 16, 17, and 18 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. To always be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. There's always something to give God thanks for. These men are carrying that out. So, for sure, listen. For sure... We're to give thanks to the Lord for his many blessings in our lives. Yes, as the Lord blesses, we have all these things to be thankful for, for sure. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you for your peace. Lord, thank you for whatever. Thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my job. Thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you for this food. Yes, we're to do that. But in addition to that, we are bound, as this verse tells us, we ought always, we are bound to give thanks that is fitting on behalf of other people as well. You, you, you see how, how, how that's different? There's an obligation we have at, as a church to thank the Lord on behalf of somebody else as is fitting. As is fitting. As people excel. Thank the Lord for that. It's why Michael said, thank you, all you VBS people. It's why I say, thank you, all you VBS people. It's fitting for us to say that because you extended yourself in a way that I ought, I am bound to give thanks to the Lord for you. Michael and I pray every Saturday at 4.30 in my office, every Sunday morning at 8.30. And we're thanking servants. We're thank, we thank the VBS people. We're just always thanking because we're bound to give thanks to those that are doing well. It's beautiful. Now, Let's talk about the connection between the two things that they're doing in verse 3, this faith and love, okay? Verse 3 says, we always thank God for you, brethren, because your faith is greatly enlarged and your love toward one another grows ever greater. (laughs) So, is it possible for somebody to just be growing and growing and growing in their faith and lessen and lessen and lessen in their love? Man, I'm really growing into my faith, but man, I just don't like people. <laughs> I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's possible to be grown in our faith and not grow in our love for one another. I think they, I know they go hand in hand. As we grow in our faith, we, we grow in our love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so let me put it to you the other way. Others can gauge your faith by your love. Others can gauge your faith in Jesus Christ by the love you have for his people. You don't have to tell me about your faith. You don't have to tell me what you know. You just got to display the love that you have or don't have, and I'll tell you your level of faith. One commentary says this about faith and love. The faith of Christians should keep growing all their lives. They should trust God more consistently and more extensively as they grow older in Christ. Faith in God is not a static thing. Since it is trust in a person, it is always increasing or decreasing. A growing faith indicates a growing Christian. Genuine faith in God is always accompanied by love for others. And you can go to James chapter 2. Faith is the root. Love is the fruit. I love that. We're in verse 4. Let's read verse 4. Therefore... We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. Isn't that fantastic? I love when people speak proudly of me. 
We speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all, not the one, but there's more than one apparently, all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Hmm. And so some great, uh, great questions arise from verse 4. Here's the first great question. Who are the people in our lives that are spiritually proud of us? Do we have people in our lives that are spiritually proud of us? Do we allow people in? Do we <clears throat> brush up along our brothers and sisters in Christ that, can, that could speak to other churches and say, man, I'm so proud of this brother. I'm so proud of this sister. I have a number of people in my community group that I'm so proud of. Most of them are actually in here right now that have just grown so much. And my wife and I talk about them all the time. Who are the people in our lives that are spiritually proud of us, <clears throat> that speak into that, say, I'm proud of you, the way you're growing in Christ? The second question is, <laughs> what, would they, what would they say? What would they speak proudly of? Paul says, we speak proudly among the churches for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your challenges. That's what he's speaking proudly of. He's telling other churches, I'm proud of these people for this reason, for their perseverance and faith in the midst of persecution. So, A, who's spiritually proud of you? And if they are, what are they speaking? What are the things they're saying about you that they're proud of you for? The third question is this. <laughs> it's not a trick question. Can you and I display godly traits in the midst of persecution and trials? The answer is yes. And that verse proves it. He's saying, we speak proudly of you to the other churches for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions, <clears throat> which means it's possible for us as well. Our fourth question. I wonder what is your current? What is your current in the midst of? That's what it says in verse 4. In the midst of your persecutions and your trials. That's what they're in the midst of. What's your in the midst of? Perhaps you and I are in the midst of something. Let me tell you this. At any and all times, the Lord's people are in the midst of something. There's no doubt in my mind that 20, 30, 40 people in this room right now are in the midst of something. And so for sure, the Christian life is marked by love and grace and mercy and kindness and patience and goodness and peace. But the Christian life is also marked by perseverance and faith. <clears throat> in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. It's marked by both. We can persevere. We can have faith in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. We live in a fallen, broken world. But because of Jesus and because of his Holy Spirit, we can live in perseverance and faith in the midst of brokenness. If that's you, if you're in the midst of something, I'm really sorry. We go through stuff, don't we? If that's you this morning, on behalf of Jesus Christ, I'm just sorry for you. Because we go through stuff. But verse 4 tells us, that verse, as verse 4 ends, that we can endure. Verse 4 tells us that they endured. That they endured. And so will you. We are to persevere in faith, is what verse 4 says. And our faith increases as we get to know the Lord more. We put our faith and trust as we know somebody more. If I meet you for the first time, I don't know that I have a lot of faith and trust in you. I don't know you. But as I get to know you more, I can put my faith and I can put my trust in you. And so the way we elevate our faith is we get to know our Savior, we get to know our Lord more so that we can persevere in those tough times. 
God is so good, isn't he? Church, we're in verse 5. <clears throat> this is a plain indication, this is evidence that you are good Christian men and women, is what he's saying, of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Hey, look, if I don't on some level suffer for my wife and for my kids, they'd have to wonder, you know, how much I really care about them. The things that Jesus cared about, he died for, he suffered for. And the things that we care about, we're going to suffer for. If we care about having a job, we have to put in the time to get the paycheck. If we want to have a great relationship with our, with our spouse or with our family, we've got to put in the time to have those things. And I, I'm not saying that, that suffering, but you get the point, right? Jesus is known in Scripture from Isaiah chapter 53. He's known as the suffering servant. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. And Jesus talks about that in Luke's gospel in, in chapter 22. He refers back to Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant. So if Jesus is the suffering servant and we're to be Christ-like in a fallen world, should we not expect on some level the same, that there will be some suffering and some affliction in a broken world? Being considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which is what it says in verse 5, which is salvation, which is eternity with a perfect and holy God, more than likely has a way of being measured. <laughs> and one of those measurements is indeed our willingness and our understanding of suffering, saying, Lord, you're worth it. Just like we were worth it to you, your kingdom of God is worth suffering for. One commentary says this, I think this is great. Endurance in trials does not make one worthy of heaven. Don't, don't misunderstand. One does not earn heaven by suffering. But endurance in trials does demonstrate one's worthiness. A person's trials simply expose what is there already. And since the character that emerges through the fire of testing is God-given, guess what happens? God receives the glory. Wow, okay. This has just reframed it for me. Church, I think we're asking the wrong question in our suffering. And I'm going to be transparent with you. I've been doing it for years. I've been asking the wrong question for way too long. And I'm ashamed to confess to you what that is. The question I've been asking when I suffer is, Lord, okay, when this is done, what's in it for me? When this is done, what do I get out of this? And the question that I should have been asking is, Lord, what's in it for you? If I suffer, what's in it for you? Is it to bring you glory? Not me, and that's for me to gain something, but for him to gain something. I've been asking the question, the wrong question, for far too long. Everything is about him. Everything belongs to him. Our lives are to proclaim his glory. VBS wasn't cool because it was cool. It's cool because God's going to get the glory when God manifests the hearts, or you know, manifests his presence in the hearts of these young men and women, these children, so that God gets the glory. That's why we do VBS. To magnify his name, not to say, man, we had 150 kids run through here and 90 volunteers. That's fine, but it's to glorify God's name. Everything we do should manifest the glory of God. Lord, help us in that. And we get in the way of that. And we ask the wrong question. Lord, I've been suffering for 10 years. When this is all said and done, what's in it for me? Nothing. I'm not saying there's nothing, right? God, God blesses us. We're his children. He wants to bless us and care for us but never before his glory, never. 
Let me share with you some verses as we wrap this up. Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. Just some great reminders that Paul talks about this often. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to eternal life. He says in his letter to Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, he doesn't just end there, he says, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. God cares for us. I'm going to close with Romans 8, 18. This is what's fantastic. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yeah, there's some sufferings. But if we understood what awaits us in comparison, Paul's saying it doesn't even compare. It's not even close to what awaits us, what will be revealed to us. And so that's the hope Not that we hope it happens. The hope that we live with is that it's going to happen. So we live with that hope of an expectancy of what's going to happen. God is so good to us, man. Amen?